Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. I began studying the psalm on Monday thinking the sermon would be a lesson in systematic theology. Because if you look at this psalm, it rather neatly divides into four parts. Verses 1 through 6, his omnipresence. Verses 7 through 12, his creatorship. Verses 13 through 18, sorry, his, uh, his omniscience. He's, he's everywhere. He's all-knowing. His creatorship, verses 13 through 18. And then finally, his holiness. 19 through 24. God is all-knowing. He's all-present. He's all-creator. He's all-holy. Nice sermon outline. But then I gradually realized that these theological abstractions are really not the heart of this, this, this psalm, this prayer. What is at the heart of it? It is an intimate relationship with Yahweh. David begins, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. This word know, some of you know, is actually the word commonly used of sexual intimacy. As in Genesis 4.1, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. The word is yada. David opens with this knowing. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Six times he says it throughout the psalm. You know me, 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 you know me. This psalm is a prayer of wonder inspired by this truth. I am intimately known by God. So rather than aim at, uh, this teaching at God's attributes, the pers- purpose of this sermon is to invite you to, to pray this psalm. That's the application. <laughs> to pray this psalm like the psalmist, to, this, to the Lord who knows your thoughts, who knows your circumstances, who knows your worth, and who knows your need for justice. And that'll, that'll be our outline. The Lord knows your thoughts and your circumstances and your worth and your need for justice. So first I invite you to pray Psalm 139. Pray in wonder to the Lord who knows your thoughts. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Our liturgy invites us into this truth. Every Sunday we begin, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open. Like a wife of 50 years knows the story her husband is going to tell over dinner before he tells it. Am I right, Mom? The Lord, the Lord knows and understands your thoughts from afar, better than you and before you. Our hearts are mysteries even to ourselves. Mine is, certainly a mystery to me, but not to Him. They are always entirely unveiled to Him. Every motive, every joy, every sorrow, every judgment, every regret, every insecurity, every wound, every longing... Every genuine love, every genuine hate in you is at this moment entirely an open book. You are completely see-through. You have nowhere to hide. And this is supposed to be encouraging. You know, if God's knowledge of us is a bit like a heavenly simply safe system that records everything wrong you've ever said or thought about saying or done or thought about doing, that makes me feel ill at ease. Yet the psalmist calls this knowledge in verse 6, wonderful. It's overwhelming. It's it's hard to fathom. So the psalmist doesn't recoil in shame from this thought. He wonders at it in prayer because the psalmist knows the heart of God. Not a simply safe security system that exists to catch us in our misdeeds, more like a, a master sculptor 
A potter who puts his hand to the clay knows the clay is just a lump, an unformed, misshapen, desperate, and desperate need of some sculpting. He knows our need and our glorious potential like the potter and the clay. In fact, Robert Alter translates verse 5 this way, from behind and in front you shape me. You set your palm upon me. Friends, his complete knowledge of us only becomes bad news if he uses it against us, but he doesn't. He uses that to shape us, to grace us. You see, in relationships, we have a few options. The first is that we can, we can be loved because we put our best self out there. We put our best foot forward. We, we calculate kind of how to hide our rough edges from everyone. We pretend to be someone better or different than who we really are. We effectively craft a puppet of ourselves and ask God and others to love it. And if we do that, this love may be comforting for a little while, but ultimately will be shallow and unsatisfying because we're not being loved for who we are. We're, we're being loved for who they think we are, and it's a sham. The second option is to risk being known, really known, and met with rejection. This is perhaps many of our greatest fears. I think it's probably a lot of our deepest wounds as well. We have been known and rejected. We, we, we let them into the intimate spaces of our heart, and, and they made a mess, and they left. A parent, a, a peers at school, a friend, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, most of us have felt, to some degree at least, the deep, deep pain of rejection. And this is precisely why we might revert to the first option. We hide ourselves by, by sort of making a, a, you know, crafting a puppet and putting our best foot forward, or we would just withdraw altogether. There's a third way, and that way frees us from, from protecting ourselves, from pretending, and that's this. It's to be fully known and fully loved, and that's, I think, what all of us deeply long for, to be fully known and fully loved. One of the great challenges in my own spiritual life is accepting myself. I'm embarrassed by my own mediocrity, my own insecurity, my own failures, I can still feel silly when I think about things I did or said 20 years ago or 20 days ago. <clears throat> I, was, I was terrified to tell people at my 20th high school reunion that I'd become a priest. <laughs> I could he almost hear their laughter. Jordan Kologi, a priest. Hmm. <laughs> uh, what I need to do in these moments of, of, of shame is, is to pray Psalm 139. Lord, you know me. And this is too wonderful. I, I can't understand it, but neither can I run from it. In fact, I don't want to. Tell me what you see when you look at me. Look at my thoughts and tell me. Look at my heart. Who am I? And then he gently leads me to scriptures like this, Psalm 139, 14. Jordan, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Isaiah 43, 4. Jordan, you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. See, I need the gaze of God, someone else with the authoritative voice, the gaze of God who fully knows me and fully loves me. I need to apprehend that to accept even myself. He's more generous with me than I am. In the words of Henry Nouwen, he says, It's a sin to deny God's love for me, to ignore my original goodness, because when I do, I lose touch with my true worth, and I embark on a destructive search among the wrong people and the wrong places for what can only be found in the house of my Father. In other words, in the house of our Father, where we're fully known and fully loved, you can learn to accept yourself, to realize that you are worth something. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. And then perhaps you'd be 
begin to love others as well. No need to hide. Jacques Philippe wrote this little book, Interior Freedom. We're going to be talking about it a lot in Lent. More to come on that. But in it, he says that the, the gaze of love, God knowing us fully and loving us fully, it, it frees us with a sort of double freedom. On the one hand, we have freedom to be sinners. On the other hand, we have freedom to become saints. So first, freedom to be sinners, it may sound strange. He doesn't mean that we are free to sin without worrying about it at all, or that's no big deal. Rather, he means that we, not, we need not be crushed by the fact of being broken sinners, because that's what we are. He says we have a sort of right to be broken. The God who knows our very thoughts knows that we are dust. He knows our frame, that we are clay, we are misshapen, we are unwieldy, we are raw. So you do not need to feel guilty for struggling. You do not need to feel guilty for existing as a sinner. You do not need to perform to impossibly high standards for him to love you. He knows your thoughts. He gazes on you in love. You are freed from needing to have to be the best of the best or wasting energy pretending you're someone that you're not. Relax. Relax. He accepts you and loves you as you are. You're free to be broken. I have this struggle, especially as a professional Christian, where I live under this constant simmering guilt of like, I could always be better, right? I could always pray more, do more devotions, or give more, or whatever it is. And so I can so easily be weighed down by like my own mediocrity. I have freedom to be a, a sinner in process. I am like clay being sculpted, and it takes time. It's actually only when you are secure in the knowledge that you're fully known and fully loved that you can pray honestly, as David does. The same man who wrote, search me, O God, see if there's any grievous way in me, also wrote these words in Psalm 38, my guilt has overwhelmed me. My wounds fester because of my sinful folly. My back is filled with searing pain. Amen. <laughs> Anyone else? I turned, I turned 35 and it was just there. <clears throat> There's no health in my body. I am, I'm feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. My heart pounds. My strength fails me. Even the light has gone from my eyes. See, David could pray honestly because God's complete knowledge of him and his loving gaze, it authorized him to be himself before God, a sinner in process. And yet, we're also freed to become saints. Remember uh, Alter's translation of verse 5. From behind and in front, you shape me. You set your palm on me. So we are misshapen, unwieldy, clay, sinners, but we are in the hands of a potter. God can ever so slowly and gently sculpt us into saints. If every day you sin, again, you fall, again, you can never exhaust his hand. He always delights in showing mercy. Every new sunrise, another chance for him to shower you with his mercy. And you can again pray, Lord, I'm sorry, I am broken, help me to become a saint. And what delight that gives him when you pray that prayer. So his complete knowledge of, of us alongside his gaze means we can accept ourselves while also hoping to become a masterpiece. So pray along those lines. Pray and wonder to the Lord who knows your thoughts. I'll be briefer on the next couple of points. Pray and wonder to the Lord who knows your circumstances. Your circumstances. David goes on in verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, everywhere your hand shall lead me. The Lord who knows you never leaves you alone. What does it look like to honestly reconcile that claim, that truth, with your past and present moments of joy and suffering? You know, most of us feel God is with us when we ascend to heaven. 
But what about the descent to Sheol? When, like David, we find ourselves praying, I'm crushed, I'm longing, my strength is failing, my body is breaking, the light is fading. Is God here? Was God there? So pray Psalm 139 this week. If you're a journaler, you might want to journal. Um, If you're not, you might want to try. I don't tend to be, but I have been a bit this week. And it's just a beautiful psalm to go through and think through and pray through. So when you come to these verses, wrestle with him. God, were you there when? Dot, dot, dot. And and something will probably immediately come to mind for, for many of you. Were you there when this happened? Or for some of you, you may ask, where are you now? Because you're struggling and you are in darkness. Let his living word offer this assurance to your soul. I was, am, and always will be with you. Let it shout this truth to you. You are not alone. I am always with you. Everything in the cosmos happens under my presence. Every ray of sunshine dancing off a wave. Every birth, every death, every diagnosis, every tear, every touch, every longing for touch, every drip of moisture from every crevice in a far-flung corner of the ancient earth, everything, every bird song, every heartbeat, every idle conversation, every eye roll, every lonely dinner, every aching back happens within the boundaries of his presence. Paul puts it this way, I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else, do we get the point? In all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. David goes on in verse 13, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my, my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Does your soul know it very well? That you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Pray and wonder to the Lord who knows your worth. He knows your worth. If there was any doubt before about whether or not the Lord who knows you loves you, let it be settled. How wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. Ephesians 2.10 God said, Paul says that you are God's masterpiece. Poema, the word poem. You are his poem. Have you ever made something or written something that you were really proud of? A song, a person, something that, you know, a, a drawing, a, a painting, something you're just really proud of that, that's, that expresses who you are. I, last year, I was quite proud of our garden. I had a, I'd spent a huge amount of time, or, you know, a couple years ago preparing it. Brenda helped me get some amazing soil, Brenda Wright, and we got these garden beds, and we had taken care of it, and I'd set up the drip irrigation system, and I was really, it was really awesome. One of the plants I was proudest of was our kale plant, because it just went bonkers. We had two of them, we only needed one, because it just kept growing, and we just kept trying to eat it, and we couldn't even keep up with it. Then last spring, we adopted a white lab. <laughs> <laughs> And a week or so after bringing him home, I found not only my drip irrigation system just, you know, lying in pieces everywhere, but my kale plant had been uprooted and was 30 yards away from the bed. And in that moment, I was very grateful for the imprecatory psalms. <laughs> have you ever made something, seriously, that you were just proud of? Or some, have you made someone that you're just proud of? And has someone else hurt that thing or that person? Parents, has someone ever hurt your child? Then you understand the way David prays next, the way he ends his prayer. He shows us that we are to pray and wonder to the Lord who knows our need for justice. Verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. 
They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. David is freed by the knowledge of God's knowledge of him, that he has nowhere to hide, to actually express his heart, to let it breathe. He can pray what is on his heart, not religious niceties, but raw pleas for vengeance. The Psalms are full of imprecations. And there's like, there's 15 or I think ish or more imprecatory Psalms, but all told there's over 60 at least, just admonitions for smiting my enemies. And why? Because when people are deeply wronged, they should cry out for justice. That's a good instinct. These psalms communicate a deep yearning for justice that is a part of the image of God in us. And they're written from the point of view of of those who have been mightily oppressed and yet who have been promised God's protection. How does this square with Jesus' teaching on loving our enemies is an obvious question. Here I, I go to Miroslav Volf, who helps us understand this dynamic. He says it's precisely God's judgment that enables Jesus' forgiveness from the cross and his radical teaching on enemy love because he says the concept of kind of a cuddly God without a sword, a God of permissive love who never judges anyone, neither should we, to that image, he says this. Imagine speaking to a people as I have whose cities and villages have been plundered and then burned and then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters and fathers and brothers have been killed and much worse. Would you tell them not to retaliate? Why not? Because God is a God of love and he doesn't judge, so neither should we. He says, I say violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. And these words hit home. It takes the quiet of a suburb to birth the belief in a God who refuses to judge. But in a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will die. You know, in the wake of the... A couple years ago, in the Ahmaud, Ahmaud Arbery, Dante Stewart wrote in, in, in Christianity Today of his experience as a black man, and, and he wrote in that article, he said, thank God that the final word about black life in America is not death on the lynching tree, but redemption found in the cross. The cross was God's rebuke of abusive power. God took the evil of the cross and the lynching tree and transformed them both into the triumphant beauty of the divine. God can take pain and transform it into power. So do you see how the ultimate vengeance of God on sin means we don't have to live as the avengers? So David, if you think about this, he's praying for God to slay them, but he is not himself slaying them. David, you remember the scene where where David's sneaking up behind Saul, who's literally hunting him like an animal, trying to kill him, and he sneaks up behind him, and he has, he can do it. He's got the knife. Saul has no idea he's there. The same man who prays for God to smite his enemies does not smite his enemy cuts a little corner off of his robe and and, and lets him go in peace. Why was he able to do that? Because he actually did trust deep in his heart that God would avenge him, God would prove faithful, God would take care of him in the end. And I think it's because he let himself go there in prayer. He let himself cry out in in, in, in deep longing for justice and vengeance in the Psalms. Now, I I had an experience with a youth group um, four or five years ago and one of, one of my girls in my youth group, we were at summer camp, and a, and a, a boy from another youth group had said some really awful things and um, was caught doing it, and uh, it was a really, really serious situation. And um, so me and some other of his pastors and, and people sat down with him, and, and the Lord led me to read a little bit of Revelation 21 and of, of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. 
Not only that, I read some other stuff too. But he needed to know that God is a God of justice and that nothing he does is in secret. Now, I'm glad he was caught. Will there be times where he wasn't? Okay, we need to know we are accountable to a judge who will have justice. But David can't pray for God's vengeance on his enemies without realizing he himself also might be the enemy. Because he ends this way in verse 23, Search me, O God. After he prays for vengeance on his enemy, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And there was. We know David and Bathsheba and Uriah. He was a murderer. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of life everlasting. David can't pray for God's vengeance on his enemies without realizing he is also the enemy of others. Other people are praying this about him. He might also have trampled on God's people, and indeed he had. So he must entrust both his enemies and himself to the justice and mercy of God. And so, friends, pray Psalm 139 this week. Pray it honestly. And if this sense of crying out for justice leads you to the awareness of your own and the way you've been an unjust and you've been a sinner and a murderer, let that lead you to the cross where you, God's enemy, were died for. So praise Psalm 139. Pray it honestly. Pray it in, with wonder to the Lord who knows your thoughts who knows your circumstances, who knows your worth, and who knows in your need for justice and who will bring it. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires are known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts. That's our only hope, is your cleansing. We're clay, you're the sculptor. So forgive us and shape us. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.